Hi, I'm Dave Perkins. And I'm Shari Tishman. Great to be with you again. And thanks to all our listeners who responded to the survey we sent out a few weeks ago. We really appreciate your feedback. For anyone who's listening for the first time, the Thinkability podcast, we like to say, is for people who like to think about thinking. And there's a bit of a tilt toward people interested in teaching thinking or otherwise cultivating it in their settings, whether your setting is school, a museum, a workplace, or the family dinner table. So we're starting season two by asking a question that probes one of the basic ideas Shara just mentioned. Why teach thinking in the first place? Now, of course, when we talk about teaching thinking, we don't mean any kind of thinking, not just more thinking. We want better thinking. So true. Well, listen, let's just get concrete for a moment. Why don't we list some examples of good thinking in action? Okay. Well, for instance, good thinking is when you have a conversation with someone with very different opinions and you actually listen to what they're saying and try to understand it and explain it back. That's great. And you don't have to change your mind, but at least understand. That sounds good. Thinking of a school context, good thinking might be when a student is reading an account of something, maybe an account of an historical event, and she reminds herself to consider what perspective the account is coming from, and also maybe what perspectives might be missing. I'm thinking of sports. And for instance, good thinking is when the manager of a pro baseball team looks at the statistics, who's good at what, what's likely to happen, he win, and makes the smart strategic choice. Moneyball, it's sometimes called. <laughs> strategic sounds good. Well, let's see, in any context, good thinking is when you're faced with a tricky problem and you brainstorm several possible approaches to it before settling on the most obvious path or the most obvious solution. And also, in any context, good thinking is when you probe beyond the information given and Try to look for those hidden assumptions. Good idea. Or when you're studying a complex topic and you start off by brainstorming a broad list of questions rather than immediately trying to distill the complexity into something simple. And let's not forget about the importance of reflection. Good thinking is when you reflect on your thinking processes and you try to make them better. Metacognition, something we talked about a few podcasts ago. Ah, yes. Well, you know, I think we could go on and on. Good thinking happens in so many ways. But let's step back for a minute and see if we can say some general things about what good thinking is and maybe what it isn't. Dave, you want to start us off? Well, let's see. One thing that comes to mind is a little scheme I made up several years ago hasty, narrow, fuzzy and sprawling. Both everyday experience and a good deal of research identifies these as broad trends in some of our thinking. To say a little more, hasty, sometimes we just arrive at conclusions too quickly. Narrow, sometimes we just aren't very fair and broad or creative in our thinking. Fuzzy, sometimes we think we're clear, but we aren't. We really don't understand what we're talking about very well. And sprawling, our thinking just isn't very organized. We need more metacognition again. So one thing we might try to address 
is this little list. Instead of hasty, let's give our thinking time. Instead of narrow, let's make our thinking fair, broad, and adventurous. Instead of fezzy, let's dig deep and get clearer as we inquire and investigate. And instead of sprawling, hey, one more time, metacognition. How about you, Shari? Well, I like that list, hasty, narrow, fuzzy, sprawling. I would add that good thinking is generous. It includes careful listening, as you were mentioning earlier, and it really casts a wide net, seeks widely for information and input. Also, there are values attached to good thinking, and those values, at least the short list, are fairness, truth, and deep understanding. Those are values that we bring to the activities of good thinking. Another I would throw on the pile is that good thinking isn't dry and dispassionate. Sometimes there's this sort of artificial dichotomy between thinking on the one hand and emotions on the other. But in fact, good thinking can be full of feeling. Emotions play a really important role in a variety of ways, you know, from cognitive emotions like surprise and curiosity that drive our thinking to emotions like compassion that that function as a kind of a tool of perspective taking. Well, I think we've painted a pretty enticing picture of what good thinking looks like. But here's a question, Dave. Is good thinking learnable? Can people actually get better at it? Or are some people just better thinkers than others? That's a really common worry. And usually the form that worry takes is what you might call the mental horsepower concept. People are born with or early in life develop a certain degree of mental acuity. Hey, and that's what they've got to work with. It's like your car comes with a certain power in its engine, and that's that. The good news, this is wrong. A lot of research shows it's wrong. It's not that mental horsepower whether it's IQ or some other theory, doesn't contribute anything. But there's a whole other side to the story, the skills, the strategies that are what are sometimes called habits of mind. There's attitudes. To expand the analogy a little, there's the horsepower of your car, but then also there's how well you drive it. And you can learn a lot about how to drive it well and make the most of it. Our minds are like that too. This thing you carry around on top of your neck, you can learn to drive it better. That's where we can teach thinking. So thinking is learnable. So what can we say about how to teach thinking? Ah, yes. The important question. Well, Dave, I'm thinking about, you know, I think one piece of the answer relates to research that you and I did many years ago and that we continue to draw on, where sort of part of the answer that we offer is that thinking, as you were mentioning, is more like a habit of mind or a part of character than just a detached thinking skill. So we talked about a dispositional perspective on thinking, that thinking is about sort of having a disposition to think in certain ways. It's not quite as simple as that. We did some research that showed that having a disposition to do something really involves three parts, three things. So one is you have to have the ability to do something. So we were talking about exploring perspectives. You know, if, if you want, if you have the ability to explore perspectives, it means that if asked, you can imagine other points of view. If asked, you can sort of 
generate a list of possible perspectives. But not only do you have to be able to do that, you have to have an inclination or a desire or a motivation to. You have to really want to do that. It's part of what it means to have a disposition. And then lastly, the third piece is that you have to be sensitive to occasions to use those thinking skills, those capacities to explore alternative perspectives, say, when it matters. And one of the really interesting findings from our research, as I'm sure you remember, Dave, is that it turns out that that piece of the picture, sensitivity to opportunity or sensitivity to occasion, turns out to be the biggest challenge. Often people have good thinking abilities. Often people are motivated to think well. But what's missing often is the sensitivity to occasion. So when we think about how to teach thinking, one really important thing to pay attention to is providing opportunities for learners to notice on their own occasions to think well. So those are some ideas. Dave, what would you add to that? Well, let's turn a little bit to what might happen on the ground in a classroom or around the table or wherever. One big maneuver is labeling and explaining. Now, we're not pushing lectures on thinking, but say in the midst of a discussion of literary work or demonstrating a math example or something like that, label good and not so good thinking moves in context and explain quickly if you need to. This can be included in modeling and facilitating in any situation, classroom or dinner table or around the business table, and get other people to do some quick labeling and explaining. Research shows that this matters. It's not just common sense. When there is some good thinking happening in the mix, but the moves aren't labeled, others tend not to pick it up. They tend not to notice what's happening and internalize it. So labeling and explaining. Here's another action point. When we're teaching the disciplines, foreground the thinking side of the disciplines. It's not just about the facts. There are what we call understanding performances, thinking with what you know, demonstrations of understanding. For instance, the law of supply and demand, we've all learned that. One thing that might happen is you might just learn the definition and two or three textbook examples, and you can pop those back up on the quiz. Fine as far as it goes. But can you really think with the law of supply and demand? For instance, suppose I ask you, in a trade economy, is there a law of supply and demand? And what does it look like? And then you'd have to kind of figure out what the story of supply and demand would look like in a trade economy. Or, for instance, does the law of supply and demand apply to something like love? Now you might say, yes and no. But okay, what's the yes side and what's the no side? In other words, a kind of a gauge of understanding and teaching the disciplines with understanding is to keep calling for going beyond the information given, stretching the concepts and putting them through their paces in less familiar situations. We'd like to see a lot of that. All of that sounds, sounds really good. Let's see. I'll add a few things. I'm remembering that that sort of long list of examples of thinking, good thinking in action that we talked about a little earlier, Dave. And that's a lot of stuff. So, you know, one piece of advice around teaching thinking is don't try to do it all at once. If you're, say, teaching in a classroom or in some sort of organized setting, 
who choose a couple of forms of thinking, or sometimes we call them thinking dispositions to focus on, and just make those a focus for a while. So for example, you might choose to focus on careful reasoning as one form of thinking. You might also choose to focus on question asking, really thinking expansively as another form, but there's lots of things you can sort of wait on. So foreground a couple of important areas of thinking is one piece of advice. Another, and I think you've touched on this quite a bit, is is to provide really frequent opportunities to think about thinking. As we've said, metacognition, you know, make thinking a thing in the classroom or any context by making metacognition a standard part of practice. And that includes assessment opportunities. You know, and sometimes this is something that we already do. Like we might ask learners to explain their thinking, explain how they got to an answer, talk about what it was like to think about something. Those are really powerful moves to make if you want to support a thinking culture. Another thing is very importantly to really explicitly encourage the transfer of good thinking moves across contexts. So you learn to think well in one place, that's great. Maybe you learn to think well in history or in science or math, but it's so important to, to transfer that more broadly. And again, thinking of work we've done in the past, you know, we've, we and others have developed things called little thinking routines, which are short little strategies. You know, a classic example is something like see, think, wonder, or think, puzzle, explore. These are good thinking moves that are broad enough to be transferred across contexts. So they're like giving learners tools. I can do a see, think, wonder. I can look closely, make careful interpretations, ask good questions in one context, and then I can move that tool to another context. I can transfer it. So those are some, I think, tips for teaching thinking as well. Well, that's a lot to keep in mind. I suppose a further question we might ask is, What's special about our needs for teaching thinking today? What stands out? I don't know. I'll start with one, polarization. We all are aware that current culture in many ways is rather polarized around a lot of issues. This relates to that theme of narrow versus broad and adventurous thinking that we mentioned earlier. Where do we see polarization? Well, one thing is that it does not belong to either political party or any other special interest group. Well, of course, we tend to think it's those others who are polarized and not us. But really, it's kind of all over the place. Another interesting side of polarization is it's not as extreme as it seems. Yes, there's some polarization. But what happens is that the loud voices tend to dominate on the internet, or even in the bar, or even around the dinner table. And actually, there are many voices kind of more in the middle, although they have their different viewpoints, that tend to get silenced by the loud voices. So there's more of a potential meeting ground than you might think. So what's the goal here? To reach across the divides where we can and to develop the tools and attitudes to do so with respect, repeating back what you hear, showing understanding, not dismissive. None of this means, as we mentioned, I think, before, that you have to change your mind. But at least one can understand other viewpoints, and people often soften and discover that the contrasts are not so stark as they might have seemed at first. How about you, Shari? 
But one message that's relevant today, I think, is that we have a heightened awareness of the influence of social and emotional factors on thinking. For example, we we understand the role that sort of a group identity can play in, in biasing or le- biasing your thinking or pushing you in certain directions. We understand a bit more about the roles that emotions can play in thinking, whether it's emotions like compassion that help you or emotions like fear that, that shut you down. Another special relevance for today is that we have a heightened awareness of the importance of exploring complexity and understanding the systems dimensions of how things work. This is especially true when we consider the big systemic global challenges at hand, environmental, social, and political. And good thinking can really be a powerful tool in helping us unpack the systems dimensions of our lives. And let's not forget, we have the internet. Any social setting amplifies certain forms of thinking And obviously, the internet is a social setting. There's so much information at our fingertips, so many special challenges and some affordances as a result of thinking via social media. And it's just more important than ever to learn how to think critically and well about life online. Okay. Thanks, Sherry. Well, it's getting a long time to wrap up. Maybe we can round things out with just a few headlines about the why and the how. Uh, Let me take a shot at the why here. Why teach thinking? Well, first of all, thinking often is not so good. It's hasty, narrow, fuzzy, and sprawling. Let's give thinking time. Make our thinking broad and adventurous. Make our thinking clear and deep. Make our thinking organized. The good news is that thinking is learnable. It's not a matter just of mental horsepower, but how you drive the car. Skills, strategies, attitudes, alertness to opportunities all count. And we can all foster those in ourselves, around the dinner table, in meetings, and of course, in classrooms. Let's see if I can say something about the how. Well, Be explicit about thinking, moves and action. We've talked about that a bit in different ways, whether it's being actively and visibly metacognitive, whether it's using little thinking routines and transferring them across contexts, but just this idea about being really explicit about when thinking is happening and what it looks like. Another how that we talked about earlier is, Dave, what you called understanding performances. Make sure that we give learners opportunities to think with the information and knowledge that they're gaining, not just sort of memorizing it or repeating it back. Also, another how is that explicit attention to transfer is so important. And as we mentioned, thinking routines and other sorts of tricks like that can really help. And as we and other colleagues have emphasized elsewhere, just creating an environment that is thinking rich, a culture of thinking where all dimensions of good thinking are supported, languages, values, modeling, and so forth. Super. So hoping that's useful for those involved in teaching thinking in any sense as teachers, parents, group leaders, any setting at all. Let's reach for that. So Shari, what's happening next? Well, coming up next time, we're doing something a little bit different. We'll be having some special guests. Our Project Zero colleagues, Emily Weinstein and Carrie James, are joining us. They are 
the authors of a new book that's getting quite a lot of acclaim. It's called Behind Their Screens, What Teens Are Facing and Adults Are Missing. And Carrie and Emily have looked deeply into how teens think in, with, and about social media. We were talking about social media earlier. And they've also looked at how adults think about teens thinking. So they'll be drawing from their book and also their larger body of work. And they'll be talking with us about some of the cognitive distortions that get magnified in digital interactions and also how their research speaks to the themes of thinking dispositions in digital life and other thinking related themes that we've been interested in. So we are very excited to have them join us. Wonderful. Well, folks, thanks for listening. As always, you can find the Thinkability podcasts on the Project Zero website or on Substack or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, see you later, Shari. And see you later, Dave.